New game day shirt? Boom. Cash back. Food for the tailgate? Boom. Cash back. Even buying a round can earn you cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, I said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who is taking the win, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees, period? I'm telling you, this one, it's a real game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Soccer Show and our latest foray into the listener questions mailbag. On today's show, we're looking at Hoppy to Hibs, Taylor Booth's impending world domination, the US WNT's road to the World Cup, and much, much more. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, it's our Celtic Crusader, Celtic Crusader, Celtic Crusader, Celtic <laughs> Crusader, who eats challenging soccer questions for breakfast, Graham and I can't speak. Hello. Hello, Ryan Bailey. Yes, I also eat Lucky Charms for breakfast, as I think you guys learned living with me for two weeks in Brooklyn. Mm. But yes, also challenging soccer questions too. Excellent. Can you get hold of Lucky Charms uh, in, in your homeland? You can. You can get them imported. Uh, that sounds like quite the process, but <laughs> Tesco have an imported aisle, so that makes that easy. I used to think they were really expensive until I bought a, Lucky, a box of Lucky Charms in Brooklyn, and they were $7, which is pretty much the price of the imported box here. So, yeah, maybe maybe the same price here in the, and in the, in the US. I bet they'd be a bit cheaper in like a Midwest Walmart, though, to be fair, than over Brooklyn, Graham. You paid like thirty dollars for a sandwich as well. Do you remember that that shop when we're walking back from playing fives or playing uh, playing yes. football? That was a very yeah. expensive shop. <laughs> oh, you're right. You're right. Little bodega. Yeah, yeah. Those were the days. Oh, Brooklyn, fun times. Uh, I'll tell you who's joining us today, Graham. A man who was in Brooklyn, Willis, who is a. Uh, Thoughtfully considering listener questions, much more thoughtfully than Todd Bowley spends his time unthoughtfully throwing money at his own problems. Joe Lowry, hello. If that wasn't the case, Ryan, I don't deserve to be on this show. I don't think any of us would deserve to be on this show if we weren't approaching it at least a little bit more thoughtfully than Todd Bowley. To loop it back around, that that place almost felt like more than a bodega. I feel like I'm opening myself up to to shots here because I, I don't fully know what qualifies and what doesn't. But that place was like unreasonably swanky. They had a lot of really mm. nice looking things. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, there was a reason why I passed on snagging anything because the sandwiches did look like they were about to cost $30. N- nobody tell the Cooligans that we're talking about this or Alexis will be in our mentions immediately after this is published <laughs> telling us what is a bodega and what isn't a bodega. <laughs> yeah, let's move on swiftly, shall we? Uh, no Taylor Rockwell on this show, by the way. Uh, emergency daddy daycare has come into action for Big T. But us three will be handling the list of questions mailbag today uh patreon.com slash total soccer show by the way if you haven't signed up to our patreon please do so uh we would love it if you were able to support us in that manner lots of bonus episodes on there bonus videos uh banter a discord what's not to love on our patreon i'm gonna do uh, a walk around of ibrox tomorrow where uh, are you? malik tillman is all of a sudden a world beater again for rangers so i'll i'll go and see where he is performing his magic yeah I'll, i did one for celtic park if people saw that so subscribe to the patreon i'll do one of ibrox tomorrow tell you what graham i'll do one of the stadio olympico on saturday because that's Ooh. where i'm going to watch Ooh. the soccer. 
There we go. Enticing. Bonus content on the Patreon coming on. And Graham's uh, Graham's walking tours are very much a highlight of the Patreon, listener. Very good. That sounds like a very middle-aged thing to say, but... Um, <laughs> Graham's walking good. tours. <laughs> There's something about it being Graham's walking tours as it, well. The name absolutely. fits very well. Absolutely. Oh, man. Much more good. riveting than it sounds from that description, I promise you, listener. Anywho, plenty of listener questions in the mailbag. Uh, totalsoccershow.com slash questions if you want to send us one we do love it when you do so um one that i didn't put on our shared document gents from demetrius osborne who said does ryan hate brentford for recalling paris magoma from his loan at air to wimbledon and immediately turning around and loaning him to a fake club that doesn't exist yes we didn't cover this on our transfer wait no they didn't they didn't did they so um he got paris basically got injured and he got recalled um, by Brentford, his parent club. Mm. And then the very next day, he went to MK Dons. Oh, no. <laughs> that, that should be illegal. That's even worse than what Dundee United did to Sterling Albion yesterday. Yeah. 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 It's, I don't, I, actually, I do know how I feel about it. I feel very bad about it, but I don't know how the player feels about it. Obviously, mm. it's just, uh, he's, he's stepped up a league technically. So good Ryan, for him. Ryan, I have a question for you. Does, I, I understand that Wimbledon fans hate MK Dons, right? That makes a lot of sense to me. Does it go the other way around? Like, is he going to get roasted by MK Dons fans because he came from Wimbledon? Or is that no. all going to be fine? No, they, they're dirty pond scum. They know what they are. They don't. Um, <laughs> it it doesn't go the other way. Right. Naturally. Okay. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing is, Brentford signed Romeo Beckham. So there was only so much quality they could have within their squad at any given time. And so they had to get rid of him on loan. I think that was the reason why. That's true. That's true. Um, but to answer the question that Demetrius poses, I don't hate Brentford because they actually have a solid pipeline of players that they loan to AC Wimbledon. We've got a good relationship with them. Um, whether that player decides he wants to step up and be loaned to the worst city in the world is his own <laughs> choice, I suppose. It really does not hold back, does Shots it? Shots left and right. Let's go. What do you expect? What do you expect? This isn't a this, normal rivalry. This is what this I is, expect. This is not a normal soccer rivalry that I'm describing here. This is... Yeah, uh, this is how Columbus fans feel about Austin. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, San Jose exactly. feel, fans feel about Houston. Maybe I don't know. I don't know if they actually care or not. But yeah. Anyway, I've got myself all riled up for a list of questions. Perfect one to start with. Let's go for a bit more of a universal theme from Kenneth Sidon. On a scale of one to ten, how excited should I be with Taylor Booth's impressive season? Joseph Lowry, Taylor Booth, uh, a Utah native, started with RSL into the Bayern youth setup, and now in Holland with Utrecht. Uh, what do we make of Mr. Booth? I wish, I kind of wish Taylor was here because I think he would have given a higher number right off the bat. As much as I love Taylor Ten. Booth and Graham, Graham was there. There Graham. it is. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, Ryan. Um, you know, Graham was there with, with Taylor and I earlier this week when we talked about Taylor Booth on Tuesday. I'm giving him a 6 out of 10. People know I'm a, I'm a fan of Taylor Booth. I'm giving the excitement around him a 6 out of 10. People know I'm a fan of his game because I talked about it. Just reference that. He's been very good at times this season, but I just want to see more of it. And that's kind of where Taylor got us to on Tuesday is he's playing very well right now. He was exceptional against Azed over the weekend in a 5-5 draw, which was just a, a wild game. Got an assist, contributed to a couple of other goals, just generally looked decisive, aggressive, and creative on the ball, all the ifs on the ball, and that's what we like to see. I, I just want to see it again, and I want to see it again, and then I probably want to see it for a club that's not Utrecht. At this yeah. point, for the U.S. men's national team, it's going to take a lot for a player to break in. It's not going to be impossible. And by break in, I mean break in like to the core group of players that you could reasonably expect expect to play 
Mexico in a Nations League final or, you know, Uruguay in the Copa America, whatever it is, right? It's going to take a lot to get those players past Pulisic and Wea and Aronson and McKenney and Reyna and Musa and Adam, all of those players. It's going to take a decent amount to climb over them in the ladder. So I don't think Taylor Booth has done that, which is why it's not a really a higher number for me. But I am I am really encouraged by his game. And I do think we should be getting a look at him in March with the U.S. Yeah. I love the attacking intent he has when when he's dribbling and and there are flicks and tricks in there, but it always feels like they have a purpose. And so I have him at a seven out of ten, and yeah. I've bumped him up a point from six to seven just because I look at how he could potentially fit into that group for the U.S. and it does feel like he he could bring something a little bit different. The U.S. don't really have a mini Messi of sorts who can actually dribble past two or three players and, and open up space. And, and Taylor Booth, maybe he's not that player right now, but he could be that player. There's plenty to to, to like about him. Joel covered a lot of it. He, like, he likes to play in the half space. He clearly has excellent technical ability. I think he looks a bit more physical this season as opposed to when I've seen him play for the US youth teams or when I went back and watched him in some of those uh, you know, U19, U18 games, which is natural given he's a little bit older now and and he's just he's just fun to watch so I certainly agree with Joe I just want to see more of this from him I want to see him replicate this form over a over a full season and then I've read some reports that Utrecht are uh, preparing to lose him in the in the summer and there are some big clubs are, are 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 interested in him I want to see that next step it's similar to I mean look very different players but similar to Luca Della Torre last season where he was doing it for a lower quality team in the Eredivisie and I wanted to see him move to one of the big five leagues he did that he's now at Celta Vigo he's just about starting to show his quality for them and I want to see it similar from Taylor Booth and if he, if he were to do that that's when you start to get into the eight and nines for excitement terms so so graham i was going to ask you what is the next step right so you mentioned big five leagues would you prefer that for taylor booth over a better eredivisie team i mean utrecht aren't a bad team they're sitting in seventh right now in the eredivisie which is a decent spot for them to be in but do Mm -hmm. you want to see him go to another league or would just climbing up in that league be good enough I'd rather see him go to one of the big five leagues, specifically really one of the big four leagues if I'm eliminating France from from contention as well. Obviously, there's an appeal to him going to, I mean, Ajax at the moment are fourth or fifth in Eredivisie, so maybe they're not in the Champions League next season. But whether that's Feyenoord or PSV, one of the bigger Dutch teams that are in the Champions League, obviously there's an appeal to him testing himself, himself against the highest calibre of opposition. But we mentioned this with West McKenney going to Leeds United. There's, you only get a handful of games in the Champions League. And actually, when you're assessing a young player, I think you want the biggest sample size possible. And so I would prefer 38 games in La Liga or 38 games in the Premier League to him staying in the Eredivisie and playing six games in the Champions League for, for Feyenoord or for PSV. So yeah, I, I would like him to go to the best quality league possible. And that's when we can really... Because that, that's where the US... If we're talking about the US making the semi-finals in 26, which is the stated aim of... Berhalter, I don't know if he's sticking around or not, but that is the aim that he's set. That's the benchmark he's set. You need players at a young age performing in the big five leagues. So if Taylor Booth is really one of the most exciting American talents, that's where he needs to be. Well, on that note, Graham, 21 years old and not made the full US um, debut yet. Is that Does that suggest a fruitful international career is ahead? Uh, potentially. I mean, the US is a very young team and so we're we're maybe setting unrealistic standards for every player to have broken through by the time they're 18, 19. You know, not every player can be Yunus Musa. 21 in the grand scheme of things is, 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 is still young and 
players develop at different rates. So I'm not too worried about the fact that he hasn't had. I mean, Joe, he hasn't he hasn't had a call up right to the to the no, senior squad at any time. He's never played certainly for the senior national team. I don't believe he's been in any real camp with them either. Yeah, I'm not too concerned about that. This season, it feels like he's made some genuine strides forward in his, in his development, and if he continues that trajectory, he'll be, he should be an important player in the next kind of two or three years. Good stuff. Uh, most importantly, guys, where does he rank on our Taylor rankings? Uh, we've got Rockwell, Booth, mm. Swift, Hawkins, Durden. Oh, oh. Durden, good one. <laughs> well, Durden's Tyler. top. Tyler Durden, surely. Oh, it's Tyler Durden, of course. <laughs> this is the war that Taylor was talking about, the Tyler v. Taylor war. Yeah, it's not It's not so much about ranking the Taylors, I think, as far as the Taylors are concerned. It's more about how their squad stacks up against the Tylers. And and oh. with another Taylor booth in the Taylor squad, I think it, it gets stronger. It does indeed. Strength in depth. That's what we like to see. Uh, let's go to Ben D. Thank you, Kenneth, for that question. Ben D says, There are concerns about the USWNT's form over the past few years and now leading up to the World Cup, as you've discussed on the podcast. But over the same period, more of the team's frequent starters have been out injured than I can remember in as long as I followed the team, says Ben. Do you think that if the US has two to three of these key players return from injury in time for the World Cup, that the team's form self-resolves and they become the clear favourites to win again? Or do you think the challenges with form are more systematic than the recent absences of players? Now, Joe, I think having a look around the odds, the US WNT is still favourites for the World Cup from what I could see. So it's not like we're in panic stations too much here. Like England, Spain, Germany... France are among the favourites, but US seem to be, certainly with the bookmakers, among the favourites. Also Russia up there, which has surprised me. But um, anyway, uh, the, what do you make of Ben's question in terms of um, the, the situation resolving when um, fitness comes around? I don't think it resolves automatically. And, and by the situation, I basically mean the US not looking as good as they are, looking like less than the sum of their parts, struggling in the attack to, to really have creative ideas against a disciplined defensive block. We saw that some against Germany. We saw that some against England. And and we certainly saw it against Spain at the end of last year in October and in November. So those are some of the problems. The U.S. lost three straight games for the first time in almost three decades. We're seeing real struggles. I mean, they go out and and beat New Zealand twice. Last month uh, against a New Zealand C team, we're going to see them in the She Believes Cup against three teams in the top 11 of the FIFA rankings in, in Japan and Brazil and Canada. Those will be much better tests. There's still not any of those teams, in my view, in that group of favorites for the World Cup, Ryan, that you just tossed out there. So that's still only going to tell us so much, but we, we will learn more about this team. That's kind of the situation to lay the groundwork here. To Ben's point, or, or his question, or, or whichever, I do think that getting some of those starters back helps this team. I don't think that's a hot take. I think the U.S. gets better if... Katarina Macario is back in the team, although Alex Morgan is a phenomenal number nine as well. They're just completely different players. So depending on the opponent, going with one or the other could have real value. Crystal Dunn, we've started to see integrate, uh, get, get integrated back into the group at left back. She's a phenomenal player and I think better than any of the other fullbacks really on either side that the U.S. has. So getting her back into the team after uh, after the birth of her son is is a phenomenal step for this U.S. team and exciting for her as well, I'm sure. Julie Ertz is really the biggest one. So she, I believe, last played for the U.S. at the 2020 Olympics, which was held in 2021, and uh, then had had a child and has not come back to soccer since then. I think it's been 18 months. Vlatko hasn't really shared too much. I was on the uh, conference call or, or uh, I guess, press conference really over Zoom with Vlatko and, and a bunch of other reporters yesterday, and, and we didn't learn too much about that, but basically time is running out for Julie Ertz to get back into the team if we're going to see her at the World Cup, I would be I would be very surprised. It, it really does not seem like that's happening. 
But if Julie Ertz or Julie Ertz, you know, clone is in this U.S. team, they're they're better. I mean, Julie Ertz is probably the best defensive midfielder that has the, the best American defensive midfielder that has ever lived, and maybe the best defensive midfielder that's ever set foot in the United States. She's that good, and she changes games in so many different ways. So yeah, getting done and Ertz and Macario and, and Tierna Davidson's maybe another of the, the injured players along with Macario. Getting those players back in, and it, I'd be surprised if we didn't get two or three of them back in before the World Cup starts. That's going to help this team. There's no doubt in my mind that the U.S. is better with those players. I think they turn the U.S. into more than favorites. I think they turn them into clear favorites. I think the the odds makers would adjust a little bit and, and make the, the odds even, even better for the U.S. and worse for betters trying to bet on the U.S., but there are still going to be problems with this team, and, and mm-hmm. maybe I'll talk about that in a second. Maybe I won't. I've done this rant a bunch of different times before. So th- these U.S. players don't fix everything on the tactical side, but they sure do make the team better. The, the problem for the U.S. is that if you look at the top teams they'll be up against at the World Cup um, this summer, they have they also have quality players, but they also have head coaches with a real grasp on how to get the best out of them in a team structure. So I, I do agree that there is a certain point where almost having a certain level of individual quality on the pitch makes such a difference that it, you can kind of um, make up for the lack of a good coach, essentially. And I'm not entirely sure that Flacco at this point is, is either a good coach or a good fit for this, this, this US group of players. But then you look at England, and Serena Wiegmann is, is the obvious example here, or even uh, Martina uh, Vostecklenburg, who had Germany playing this really coherent and well-coached game at the Euros last summer, and they have players playing for some of the biggest and best teams in, in European women's soccer. So it feels like the US maybe... They're not at the point of having having anything like that right now. And Joe, you mentioned the midfield. We spoke about that a lot in the preview, the, the live show that we did before the, the US-England game. And Julie Ertz being missing and the US having trouble progressing the ball and converting possession into creativity and opportunities. And Vlatko is trying some new things in midfield, tried some new things in midfield in that New Zealand game or the two the two games. But that's still where a large share of the concern is. And I think that's where you can really see the lack of identity. And it just feels like if this is a generational shift for this this group of US players, you look at England and Germany in particular, maybe even Spain. I know they've had some issues with Jorge Vilda and the head coach situation there. But they feel more like a mature side that know what they're all about. They know their identity and the US aren't at, at, at that stage. So if individual quality is going to be enough to, to get them over the line at the World Cup, it's going to have to be a huge amount of individual quality. And that's where you're looking at getting all the players, Joe, that you mentioned, like Macario, Julie Ertz, Christian Press, Tobin Heath, all those people. They all need to be back in the, in the team, really, I think, for the US to be the dominant side of that tournament again. Yeah, they, they need all the talent they can get, basically, at this point. And and I don't, really, the wingers, I don't think we're going to see any new players integrated into that pool. I think Mallory Swanson and, and Sophia Smith have taken over those two starting, starting spots. And so it's, it's going to be an uphill battle for Tobin Heath to get back in the squad and same for Kristen Press. But really, the talent is there, right? Like, the number six spot is really the only spot that I'll, I'll say, okay, that is, that's a little weak. I think Andy Sullivan is probably the the weak link in the team, and that's not really what you want out of your number six, maybe closely followed by the fullback spots, but there's so much talent in this team. The U.S. shouldn't need, and this this is kind of my frustration, Graham, and you got, a lot, you got at a lot of this. The U.S. shouldn't need Julie Ertz to suddenly look like a real team. They, they shouldn't need, maybe that's a bit harsh, they shouldn't need Julie Ertz to look like a world beater, right? They shouldn't need Katarina Macario to be able to play every minute of every game to look like this team that is 
playing really good and effective soccer. And, and that's been the issue with this U.S. team. They just haven't been playing like a team full of world-class players. They haven't been playing like a team that has 15 of the very best players in the world right now. We just haven't seen them really come together and play like a team that's going to steamroll everyone in their path. Vlaco's been around for long enough that we should have seen that by now. The Olympics was a, a failure, genuinely. Not, not because of the result. I'm fine if, if this U.S. team... And any team plays good soccer and loses, right? That's There's variance in this game. You cannot control everything, and, and trying to do that is foolish, and I think it's silly from an analysis standpoint. But the Olympics was a failure because the roster was wrong, and it didn't prepare the U.S. for what was coming, and the team didn't play well. They played really bad soccer with the ball in that tournament. That's a problem, and I, I'm concerned that we're going to see something similar this time around. I'm optimistic that Katarina Makaria will help this U.S. team a, a decent amount with her play and her ability to drop into midfield. But yeah, getting getting these players back would help a lot because Vlaco, I'm not convinced, can draw up a game plan, kind of like you said, Grammar. I'm not convinced he can get this team all rowing in the same direction to really get them and, and actually have them be clear favorites at this tournament. All right. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you, Ben D, for the question. Uh, many more coming after these short commercial messages. New game day shirt, boom, cash back. Food for the tailgate, boom, cash back. Even buying a round can earn you cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, I said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who is taking the win, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees, period? I'm telling you, this one it's a real game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Did you know that even if you have a 401k for retirement, you can still have an IRA? Robinhood has the only IRA that gives you a 3% boost on every dollar you contribute when you subscribe to Robinhood Gold. But get this, now through April 30th, Robinhood is even boosting every single dollar you transfer in from another retirement account with a 3% match. That's right, no cap on the 3% match. Robinhood Gold gets you the most for your retirement thanks to their IRA with a 3% match. This offer is good through April 30th. Get started at Robinhood.com slash boost subscription fees apply. And now for some legal info. Claim as of Q1 2024 validated by Radius Global Market Research. Investing involves risk including loss. Limitations apply to IRAs and 401ks. 3% match requires Robinhood Gold for one year from the date of first 3% match. Must keep Robinhood IRA for five years. The 3% matching on transfers is subject to special terms and conditions. Robinhood IRA available to U.S. customers in good standing. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC is a registered broker. Dealer. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to listen to questions. Zach Lippert has been in touch. Uh, he says, if Toto Wolf managed Manchester United, <laughs> and obviously Christian Horner would manage Liverpool, who are the managers or GMs from other sports who could be good soccer managers, either for their leadership abilities or being renowned for understanding tactics? Uh, for the... Um, Help of the listeners who maybe don't yes. know motorsport and also, also Joseph Lowry. Uh, yep. This is a reference to Formula One. So if you've seen Drive to Survive on Netflix, you might know that Toto Wolff is the team principal, basically the manager of the Mercedes F1 team. Crush. Also Ryan's man crush. Big yes. time. 
big, big, big. He is big a machine. Time. Have you seen him in the gym? What the also, Graham's man crush. All right, we're learning new things <laughs> yeah. every day. Joe, just just for clarity, he's like, is he Austrian or German? I think he's Austrian. Uh, I don't know. I thought he's, he was German, but he might be Austrian. I'm not might, sure, I, think, I think you're right. He might be German. Either way, he's a big beefcake. <laughs> he's a billionaire. He's a very powerful man <laughs> who runs an F1 team. He's basically my hero. So he should, he should yeah. own Manchester United, not manage. Right? That's what we're learning here. Okay. I yeah, mean, yeah. possibly. Uh, well, he's also, in he's in business with uh, Jim Ratcliffe, so essentially, yeah. oh wow, okay, by extension, connecting the dots. This this is the link, Joe. So Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who's linked with the Manchester United job, also owns a piece of the Mercedes F1 team as well. So uh, there's there is a link there. And Christian Horner, the aforementioned, is the team principal of um, Red Bull. So is that is 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 Zach's question? Is that just because he's putting Christian Horner at United rivals? Is that why Horner? I with believe Red so. Bull being right. Okay, just because Christian, Hor- Christian Horner is a giant conservative donor and I'm not sure that Liverpool with their political which we'll come on to later on but with their political yeah. alignments maybe Christian Horner doesn't work well Christian there, Horner is also a giant donut but um, <laughs> anyway <laughs> yeah. I'm a total wolf fan uh, so but that, that is what we're saying here the, they are good leaders I think I've mentioned on this podcast before that I believe Total Wolf could absolutely manage a soccer team just because I think anyone would run through walls for him I think he's very tactically minded very disciplined and I think the skills he has that's literally made him a billionaire and the team principal of one of the biggest motorsport teams in the world would translate well to soccer so that's my my, my theory there um, Graham, I suppose I'll come to you for, for your only thoughts. Uh, any other, any other sports people who would be good soccer managers who would translate over? So obviously, given my my fandom, my, my mind straight away goes to, to tennis. I know it's not a, a team sport, but you have coaches in, in in tennis. So Ivan Lendl would surely have the fear factor, I think, to whip a a soccer dressing room into shape. So he was one of the the best players of his generation, Andy Murray's longtime coach, and he just never shows any emotion. He is a, a hard taskmaster, so I think get him into Everton and, and they'll be saved from relegation <laughs> soon enough. And then uh, just Uncle Tony Nadal as well, because, I mean, look what he did with Rafa. So imagine him as uh, Pedri or Gavi's coach. I think Pedri's coming back for next season. You talk about Total Wolf being a beefcake. I think if Uncle Tony had Pedri over an off season, he's he's coming back ripped for 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 that season under under his uh, stewardship. But in terms of in terms of American sports coaches, I, I don't really have that knowledge. I mean, I know who. This is where I maybe pass the mic to Joe. He might be, have a few suggestions here. But I've got my I know own. Who but, but thank you. St- yeah, you Steve Kerr is Doc Rivers. I've heard of him. Bill Belichick, obviously. <laughs> Sean McVay. I mean, would any of those guys make good soccer coaches? I, I, it's just not. I don't have the knowledge base, Joe, to make sure. a judgment on that. So I don't. I don't think any of any of really who we're saying would probably be good soccer coaches because I do think there is. A real tactical element here that is important, and without going through the the licenses and, and really knowing what you're talking about, you would have a, 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 some problems. Ryan's giving me the side eye because he thinks Toto Wolf defies all of all of what I'm saying. I will say there's that classic <laughs> Julian Nagelsmann quote that I come back to every single time, which kind of goes against what I'm saying, but also kind of doesn't. He says coaching 30% of coaching is tactics, 70% is competence, referring to social competence. And I do think there's something to that. It's just hard to be a good manager when you're only working at 70% capacity here. So oh, anyway, some, some names on that list, Graham, that you just mentioned that are also on mine. I've only got three total, but Steve Kerr, I have as managing Paris Saint-Germain or, or really any other star-studded team. So good at managing egos with the Golden State Warriors, had Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant and Draymond Green. Basically, you know, three and three quarter superstars, like three three players that will be remembered forever and then Draymond Green who will also be remembered forever sort of in a in a slightly different way perhaps but i mean that was a difficult job for him to to accomplish and to balance all of those 
I, I don't know how challenging the coaching was in a lot of different situations, but managing egos is a big part of trying to manage a super team like PSG or, or really like a lot of the other big teams around Europe. He also, Steve Kerr, visited Liverpool with, with the club, has talked about the similarities between soccer and basketball. So there's some wheels turning up there on the soccer side. So Steve Kerr's on my list. Greg Popovich, um, San Antonio Spurs coach for a long, long time in the NBA. I've heard of him. Very successful. Graham has heard of him. Another mark on his resume. Very good. I think you just might be Carlo Ancelotti. I think they might be the same person. Just like Ancelotti is the Italian version and Popovich is the American version when they were plopped down at birth or whatever it is. So I, I would like to see Popovich coach Real Madrid and then Bill Belichick to coach the New England Revolution because right. he might just be Bruce Arena. Um, would we even notice that Bruce <laughs> Arena is gone? I have many Moonlight. questions about this. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I want to see I want to see Bill Belichick just uh, switch jobs in Foxborough. I'm, I also I mean if, is, Steve um, Nash. Sorry, is he is he was he a good basketball coach or no? no or he, might he, he be a better soccer coach given his? Uh, I mean, he prefers soccer to basketball. Right? I'm gonna like I'm gonna it. wager not given the Champions League coverage we saw. But you know, <laughs> okay. we never know. We never know. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, I, I was thinking, Joe, is Belichick like a Mourinho-type figure? Yeah. Oh, I can see a lot of that. Yeah. I can really so So we get Belichick to Roma, then, I think, is the answer here. Yeah. That's the answer. There we go. I'll, I'll take him for a pizza. Um, <laughs> yeah. You won't. I, I, no, you won't. I have one idea. I mean, it's not, it's not another sports person. It's another leader. Um, right. Do you know John Fetterman? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the Philadelphia's, uh, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia senator um, sort of, you know, quite atypical for a politician. Dresses like a sports yeah, yeah. guy. He's a Harvard graduate. Uh, he played college football. He's been like lieutenant governor. He's been mayor of his uh, of his region as well. I think he 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 to me, Graham, seems like he could do like the Sean Dyche role. Like no nonsense, yeah, but, but also very smart behind behind this. Uh, you know, behind the ears. Yeah. Three but that's years. the thing, right? With Fetterman, you look at him and you think, well, Burnley or something like that, like Sean Dyche, but. You know he's he's a smart guy who who smart. defies ex, you know expectations of him, and so maybe just having him at Man City or something like that would be would be fun. Maybe that actually is who he is. So but yeah, fair him at Man City. Sean Dyche is very smart as well, though. To be fair, I think his uh, his gruff exterior hides some some soccer genius, does it not? In a in a sense, yeah, it's it's like uh, the dark arts. I think there's there's genius in the dark <laughs> arts that Sh- Sh- that Sean Dyche, uh, you know, professes. There there is actually just one further beat on this. There is actually one pretty pretty notable example of a coach from another sport moving into soccer. Uh, Ryan, you might you, you've surely heard of this guy, Clive Woodward, who was yeah. the, the the England rugby head coach when they won the World Cup, right? He went to Southampton yeah. and and he became their performance director, and then he was their director of football. I, I don't think it went very well because uh, that was his only... He didn't go to another club after that. But every so often you do get suggestions of someone from another sport moving into soccer. I'm pretty sure some of the like British cycling people were moved into jobs at the FA or were tipped for jobs at the FA when they were really successful at the Olympics. Not not really in coaching jobs, but in kind of front office jobs. I think that maybe a couple went over to the FA. So yeah, it does, it does mm. happen from time to time. It does. Uh, making uh, coming back to your tennis references and Tony Nadal, uh, Rafa's coach. He's his uncle, right? Yeah. Because his brother, I believe, played for Barcelona as well. Like his uncle's right, brother. Yeah. So he uh, Nadal has like two uncles who are very good at sports and also has a good football link. Even though he's a Real Madrid fan, uh, Nadal, right? He has a, a big Real Madrid fan. Yes, that's a little bit weird. You and his uncle played for tennis. Barcelona. Yeah, you you get that quite often in tennis. So um, Sebastian Corda, who's currently one of the best young players in the world, he's got two sisters who are like among the best 
players on the women's golf tour and his dad was a as a former professional tennis player as well so yeah i think i think it might just be down to people having money whisper it but i think that might be the secret behind their success <laughs> you might be onto something there greg although the nevilles uh gary and phil i believe their sister is a, a professional netball player or was. netball player and is um or, or is gary neville's sister not the head coach is not as is, is the head coach of the England netball team, I think, and then may, maybe like one of his daughters plays for. I'm I'm, I'm not sorry. sure, but there's what, a netball. What is netball? There. What is is netball tennis? I'm really confused here. <laughs> it's netball tennis. Netball is uh, basketball, but I believe you, you. There's no dribbling, right, Ryan? That's the difference. It's in the Olympics, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's similar to basketball, Joe. I Joe, there's so no way questions. that you can be lecturing us on cornhole and pickleball and then asking <laughs> us what netball is, which is a much more orthodox and conventional sport. That, I, I, I don't believe it. I don't. Pickle, believe it. Pickleball, by the way, I was watching some professional coverage the other day, and the best description I saw of it is it looks like um, people warming up for tennis uh, in slow motion. <laughs> it does. It really does, actually. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Anyway, I do want to play Pickleboy. It looks fun. We've gone way off target. Thank you very much, Zach, for that question there. Uh, let's go to Jesse Howe, who has a question for you, Graham Oven. With uh, the announcement of Matthew Hoppy joining Hibernian of Scotland on loan, can you give us a brief synopsis of the club and what are the odds he's actually going to be successful there? Now, Graham, the only thing I know about Hibs is it's either the one that raced uh, our Broico succession <laughs> did buy or didn't buy. I'm not sure. Um... I think he buys hearts, but he's a Hibs fan, right? That that it's, was it's, that it's that one was way the around joke. Or the other. Yeah, yeah. Because what happened was um, in the UK, the uh, succession is shown on Sky, and then Sky sponsored hearts for a game, and they put Waystar Royco on the shirt for That's for the game to promote succession, which was really cool. I did enjoy that. Anyway, switching focus to Hibs. Um, Hibs are Scotland's Tottenham Hotspur essentially so oh. to hib something is to bottle it you'll hear that yeah. quite often quite hibsy to hib something uh and obviously there's comparisons there to how people use the term spursy to describe something they are a hibs are a bit of a tragic club there was this curse in the scottish cup that saw hibs go over 100 years without winning it which was the longest drought in scottish football history and for a club of that size just completely unacceptable that ended in 2016 but they still have this knack of taking good players and making absolutely nothing of them they have an american owner ron gordon who has spent a lot of money you can see that in their facilities. They have a, a really good stadium. They have a great training ground, but they are a terribly run club with a manager their fans aren't really sure of right now. He's been on the verge of the sack recently. In fact, there was an Aberdeen Hibs game at the weekend, which was called El Sakico because whoever lost that game was going to get sacked. Hibs won. And so it was the Aberdeen manager that got sacked, Jim Goodwin, the, the very next, or 19 minutes, minutes after full time. It sounds like a, um, a wrestling title match or something there. <laughs> Whoever loses, get, was it announced on the tannoy before the game? Essentially, yeah. <laughs> they gave Hibs a trophy and everything. The Osaka trophy. Um, but yeah, Hibs, not in a, not in a great place right now. Um, th- their squad is full of players simply not good enough for that level. Um, but other than that, though, things are looking really good for them. Uh, Matthew Hoppe, in terms of how he'll do there, I'm, I'm not convinced he'll get a great deal of game time. So Kevin Nisbet is Hibs pretty much their only top-level player, I, I would say, now that they've sold Ryan Porteous. And they tend to use one striker with with uh, another player called Eli Yuan on the left as the closest player to him. And I don't think Hoppy has the creativity of Yuan. So I'm not sure where he got, comes into that team. I, my guess is that Hibs kind of got Hoppy in 
because they thought Nisbet would be sold on transfer deadline day. He went down to Millwall to get that deal done and then came back up after seeing what Millwall was like and didn't get that move, that move done. And now Hoppy's there and Nisbet is still at the club. So I, I really don't have a clue how Hoppy will fit into this Hibs team. That probably isn't a great sign for him um, because at this moment in his career, it feels like he just needs to get reps and needs to get game time. And I'm not convinced he's going to get a lot of that at Hibs. I don't want to fully grill you on the tactics here, Graham, but I, I want to make sure I understand. So you mentioned Nisbet up top, right, with Yuan sort of closest to him. Is that as yeah. a second striker or is that as a wing? I'm looking That's on correct, Fatmob, yeah. and Fatmob is always usually wrong in terms of the shapes. Okay, so it's it's not two wingers and a number nine. It's more so a front two, basically, with, with then players underneath. Are there still wide midfielders underneath that front two, or, or what does that look like? So Hibs this season, and this has been changing a lot this season because they've not been doing sure. well, okay. and so their manager's been scrambling for solutions. But the most common um, way that they set up is with Nisbet as the one, they then have a defensive midfielder, so it's a 4-1-4-1, and then Yuan kind of has this free role where he, on paper, he'll be out on the left, but he kind of drifts around and he's the one who links the midfield and the attack. Right, he's actually okay. not bad. I quite like Eli Ewan. And then they have Aidan McGeady. Some listeners will have heard of him uh, from playing English English soccer. He tends to be the right winger. And then Ewan drifting inside creates space for a left back to kind of overlap and keep the width on that side. Um, okay. So within that system, I just I don't really know what Hoppy is. I don't know what his role is. Besides if- maybe minutes off the bench if they're playing on the counter-attack or something like that. I mean, the beach, first of all. But besides that, <laughs> if, if uh, McGee, I'm looking him up right now, he's 36. Is there a yep. chance that Hoppy gets minutes out on the right side and, and really kind of grows into that role and takes that from McGee? Or is that is that not going to happen? Um, McGee is getting on a bit. He's kind of one of their better players. So I guess it would require him to pick up an injury or maybe get fatigued at some point. I wasn't so sure about Hoppy's ability to play on the right. Is that is that something he is? I think he can. He's probably doing? better on, on the left. And, and I don't know where Matthew Hoppy should play, Graham. This is impossible <laughs> for me. Yeah, I, I think maybe he's better on the left, but he could play on the right, I think. See, that's one of the things with Matthew Hoppy is I think uh, he needs a coach to figure out what kind of player he is, essentially. And he, he, he that can't happen without game time. And as I said, Lee Johnson, who's the Hibs manager right now, um, to be honest, I'm not a fan of his. I'm I'm not convinced he's a very good coach. So both from a game time point of view and also just the coach he's going to be working under and also just the way Hibs are as a club right now, I'm not so positive on the, on this move. I don't know who I don't know who Matthew Hoppy's agent or, or representation is, but his last I guess this would be the third move. So going from Schalke to Mallorca, that's one. That was a disaster. Going from Mallorca to Middlesbrough, that's two. That didn't work, although it wasn't all that long. I think it was like six months. And then from Middlesbrough to, to Hibbs, which doesn't seem like is a spot where he's really going to get a chance to develop all that much, even though it's it's the lowest level that he's played at in any of those stops, even dating back to his time in Germany. Like, why why is this happening? I don't under, I don't understand why these are the, the moves that Matthew Oppie is making. Jer- Granted, I don't think he has a lot of options right now, but still, this feels this feels not good. He's, Jer- he's, he's on loan, right? Yeah, he's on loan. He's on loan. Yeah, he he's definitely being punished because to go from Spain to Northern England to Scotland, <laughs> like where's he going to go next? Edinburgh is. I mean, it's not my favorite place, but as a, if you're a tourist, if you if you're if, uh, Americans love Edinburgh, right? So maybe Matthew Matthew Hoppy is going to actually really like Edinburgh. If he he's on loan at Hibs, right? So I just had to clarify yeah. that in case it was a, a a permanent transfer. There are plenty clubs in the Scottish Premiership that he could have gone on to yeah. on on loan to and got more game time and been a better fit. 
I mean, he doesn't really need to worry about getting relegated. Motherwell are in a relegation fight right now. Motherwell kind of need a player like Matthew Hoppe. So I would have gone to Motherwell and, and he would have been a first team player for them. Yeah, Joe's right. I don't know who's advising him. These are all weird moves. <laughs> all right, Jesse, thank you very much for that question. A quick break and a couple more after this. Back shortly. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Shopify, who would like to remind you that not everyone can be Erling Holland or Harry Kane. I would say only Erling Holland and Harry Kane can be Erling Holland and Harry Kane. But more to the point, not everyone can score the number of goals that those two score. Not everyone can set the goal scoring record. Sometimes you've got to be the teammates. Sometimes you've got to be the assists uh, person. You've got to be Kieran Trippier or Kevin DeBarna. You've got to spread the ball around. You've got to help facilitate that attacking play and those goals to help get the results you want. Because you need that perfect teammate, and when you need a perfect teammate when it comes to growing your business, Shopify has you covered. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. That feels like a good stage to be at. Shopify is there to help you grow along the way. How do they do that? Well, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. You can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So you don't have somebody kind of following you around the online store just saying, can I help you, can I help you, can I help you? Nobody needs that in real life or online, but Shopify's AI gets the job done. And that is a very unique aspect of Shopify that no matter how big your business is, and that's something I really appreciate, you can be a a podcast just starting up, a podcast that's been here for a while, or a business that actually makes money. Either way, uh, Shopify is going to help you because that's what they are all about. Sign up for just $1 per month uh, trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Uh, One more time, go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash TSS. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Shreya Shramani has been in touch, who says, what are some notable political or religious ties that clubs te- club teams have around the world? Thinking of examples like St. Pauli, or Rangers. Uh, there's quite a few examples out there. I've got a few political ones certainly uh, noted down here. Graham, where would you like to start here? 
Oh, so I feel like we should go to your adopted homeland for some clubs with political and Ooh. religious ties. There There's are one few. very close to here. There is one very close. So I might, <laughs> I might, I might leave that one for now. I'm going to go for a club that maybe people aren't that familiar with the political uh, ties that they have. So Livorno in in mm. Italy are one of the most political clubs in the world. So a bit of background: the the Italian Communist Party was founded in Livorno. And the city's football club, the team, became a symbol of that political identity. And the club was persecuted many times under the Mussolini regime. And their fans have clashed with uh, Lazio fans and fans of other right-wing clubs in, in Italy. And their fans also wave banners of Che Guevara during games. And they celebrate the birth the birthday of uh, Joseph Stalin. So... Yeah, Livorno are certainly a club with a lot of political ties. I think a lot of people know um, about Lazio. They're worth mentioning mentioning as well, but might not be so familiar with Livorno. Yeah, that's a very good... Uh, on the other end of the political ideology scale, as you say, Graham, sits Lazio, uh, who were a favourite of Benito Mussolini. Um, so the club itself officially has no political stance, and I think a lot of fans you talk to will say they're apolitical, and they're all sort of... Um, uh, not believe the right-wing leanings that people believe them to have. But historically, they have ultras groups who populate the Curva Nord in the Stadio Olimpico who have neo-fascist political ideologies. Uh, lots of banners have been displayed during games. Some of them are absolutely shocking. Like yeah. I'm not even going to say some of the stuff on the banners that I found when I was researching this. It was absolutely horrendous. Yeah, there's there's one from a very famous one from 1998, which you can look up this note basically refers to the Holocaust. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, which was 50 feet long, which is horrendous. And that was uh, sp- displayed during um, the, the Derby della Capitale with Roma. Uh, Paolo Di Canio, one of their former famous players, has a Mussolini tattoo. He's, he was uh, shown at the Olimpico doing a Roman salute, which is a salute um, <laughs> not that long ago. I mean, even I think it was last season that they have an eagle, which tells you a lot about their uh, leadings, a giant eagle on their badge. And they have a before games. It's, it's relatively impressive. An eagle flies around the stadium in a loop. Uh, and the guy who looks after it was seen doing the Duce salute as well in the stadium so it's kind of a a thing that very much uh, unfortunately still exists uh, at Lazio and if you want to know why if you ever go to the Stadio Olimpico uh, have you ever been Graham? No I haven't actually okay. uh, outside on the Foro Italico which was built by Mussolini the Foro Italico oh, the which statues. is where the, the Italian <laughs> Open is as well there is a giant obelisk with Mussolini written on it you know after after the war Germany, to its credit, got rid of a lot of the right-wing stuff that they had. Uh, still exists very much in Rome. So yeah. it's, it's kind of we're, right there. You mentioned they play the Italian Open, the tennis tournament there, Ryan. And so that's where I've seen that on TV because that tournament mm. takes place right in that sort of in the grounds of the stadium where a yep. lot of the statues are and where that obelisk is. And I believe a lot of the statues as well are quite problematic in this day and age i think yes lots of fascist statues on the foro italico by the uh, tennis tournament as well so yeah um it's it's very much um it's not been disguised in any way shall we say in rome which is unfortunate another one which is quite interesting um in terms of politics is athletic bill bow as well which i think we talked about before you look at the political scale in spain Real Madrid closely associated with the regime of General Franco during his reign. Barcelona, often on the other end of the scale, representing Catalan independence. Athletic, very much a symbol of Basque nationalism. Spain is very regional, so you've got the Basque region, all the other Galicia and everything going on in Spain. So different, very different ideologies in different regions. And during Franco's 
uh, fascist regime, the Basque language itself was banned. They've obviously had their own language and as, as the Catalans do as well. Uh, so athletic, which is the traditional English spelling of athletic Bilbao, was changed to Atletico. Um, and they weren't even allowed to fly the Basque flag. But as a as a mark of protest, they kept the athletic, basically, or a lot of the people did there. Um, and basically, the San Mames Stadium was a bit of a sanctuary and a platform for the cause of the Basque people. And even today, it's, it's a bit like Liverpool, where the fans are, apparently in great numbers don't sing the national anthem at like big cup games and stuff. So um, very much uh, a political team there in Bill 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 about too easy for me to say Graham <laughs> yeah sp- Spanish football is is full of interesting stuff like that between the, the different regions in Catalonia and the Basque country and then obviously the the capital and you have a lot of Franco connections there as as as, as you mentioned so it's one of the reasons I, I kind of love um Spanish football is all that history and one day I'm going to do I've been to a few places in Spanish and in, in Spain to go to some of the stadiums but I'm going to do a tour of of some of the the Spanish clubs one day, um, so yeah, I look forward to that when I do it. I'm going to head to a, a couple other suggestions. We're going to head to um, Israel, where um, of <coughs> course a lot of political and uh, religious elements tied up in in, in that region. And 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 Beitar Jerusalem are a club with overt right wing leanings. They don't traditionally they don't allow Muslim uh, Arab players to play for them, and their fans are notorious for their right wing views and 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 nationalism. Um, and as they see it, right wing politics are at the heart of the very purpose of of the club. That's kind of one and the same: the the political ideology and then the the club itself. And then on the flip side, uh, Betar's main rivals are Hapoel Tel Aviv, and they exist on the other end of the political spectrum, and their fans wave flags of Gandhi and Karl Marx and, and the words Hapoel actually means the worker which gives you an idea of where their political beliefs lie so there, there are another couple uh, suggestions for you there Very nice indeed Joe anything to add on to this one? I don't have a lot more. You guys have gone through a few that were on my list. The only two that I'll mention now are two MLS clubs, Portland and, and Seattle, Portland Timbers and Seattle Sanders. Both tend to lean much more towards the left wing in the United States. Portland uh, fans displaying anti-fascist symbols in the supporter section with uh, this was kind of a big story in MLS with yeah, Iron Front and, Iron and a lot Front of thing, those. Right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So that was a, a little bit of a mess in a lot of ways and, and Portland had to come out and clarify a bunch of different stuff. But I think there are real there are real ties to that political ideology in in a lot of the Pacific Northwest and certainly sort of with those clubs there have been different sort of blips along the way and, and Portland especially have had a nightmare on the organizational side and on the ownership side on on the thorns and all of the just awful stuff that's happened there but I think a lot of American soccer teams right in soccer in the United States tends to to lean towards the left and and to have a lot of those same common thoughts and, and ideology so portland and seattle were, were the first two that came to mind for me here in the u.s on that front good additions there one additional one we should mention of course in england uh, mk dons who stand for the political ideology of being <laughs> absolute garbage people and the religion of satanism so uh thank you very much Shreyas, for that question uh one final one from sean lopez who would win in a game between a team made up of 11 strikers and another team made up of 11 centre-backs? For comparison's sake, let's use the USMNT player pool to build your rosters. Good luck finding 11 strikers in these teams, <laughs> guys. You can find I mean, 11, just not 11 good ones, right? That's the problem. Yeah, I'm tempted to... In, in the, uh, the, the overall 
oeuvre of this question, Joe, I'm tempted to say strikers, but is it that simple to say the strikers would win? I think it is. So my my gut answer was striker before we started and after I made my teams. Maybe this is just the U.S. pool talking, but it, it became very clear that striker was still the answer, despite I think center back being... Uh, Wait, did you a, actually a make a spot? team? Was that was, was I made that a team. to do that? No, oh, no right, you're fine. Okay. I got it. I, I just made it for fun because I'm I'm a sicko. Um, so my, my gut answer was striker. I feel like I feel like in this this is what I wrote down before I went through and made my team and kind of proved myself right at least in my own head. So maybe maybe this is just me, but I think the average striker can play more positions and be more comfortable in more areas of the field than the average center back. I think the striker. Spot uh, and, and strikers can translate over to the wing better than a center back could. They can translate better to an attacking midfield spot than a center back. They can translate better, I think, maybe even to the number eight spots than a, a center back could. And then maybe even fullback. I think fullbacks could be could be done by both strikers and center backs. And then and then center backs are probably better as a six. But I think overall the striker can do more things than the center back can on on the average basis. And so my team. I'm going to go through my team, and you guys can tell me who would win. Graham, I'm curious on your thoughts especially. So for the U.S., my striker 11. Buckle up, people. <laughs> I have Jeremy Abobasi. I have Jeremy Abobasi in goal. This is a nightmare for the, for the U.S. I have Jossie Zardes at right back because he's played uh, right back in professional games before, back when he was with the LA Galaxy. I love my center back pairing. I've got Josie Altidore and Daryl DK knocking it around in the middle of the back line. I feel really good about that, actually. I've got Josh Sargent at left back because he has also played outside back for, for Norwich. So I feel like that works pretty well. I don't love my six. I've got Brandon Vasquez at the six. I'm not convinced that's the right move, but it's what we're going for for now, and he's going to muscle some dudes off the ball. I have Florin Balligan with my wishful thinking as a number eight. I feel like it could work. I think he could go box to box mm-hmm. and, and sort of get on the ball and progress. So I've got Balligan as the number eight. I've got You're assuming Sarrera. that he is going to accept the call. Yes, there, yes, I am, Graham. Yes, I'm assuming <laughs> that after a hat trick yesterday in Ligue 1, he is he is tearing it up right now in Europe. So I, I don't feel great about it. But I've got Ferreira as my number 10. He's play, literally played the 10 before. He's a good fit for that spot. I've got Haji right on the left, Ricardo Pepe on the right, both kind of lanky, like the slash and get him behind. And then I have Jordan Pifak, Graham's favorite person of all time, yes. as my number nine, because I just can't picture Jordan Pifak doing anything else. I, I actually kind of like that team. I feel like there are some things about it that would work. They would not win many games, but they would win against my center back 11, which I'll go through more quickly. Walker's in remaining goal. He's like, he's got that, you know, I'm from the South and, and I, I probably have played football, American football before, so I, I use my hands. That's why I've got him in goal. Aaron Long's played right back. He's on the right side of my defense. Chris Richards is on the left. He's also played fullback. He's on the left side. Eric Palmer, uh, Eric Palmer Brown, excuse me, and Cameron Carter Vickers in the middle of the back line for no other reason than saying EPB and CCV in the middle of the back line nice. is really fun. I've got Tim Ream as my number six, sort of a Regista kind of dude. Austin Trusty's going box to box as my number eight. John Brooks is my oh, number see, ten, like pulling the strings. <laughs> this team would be more chaotic, but I don't think they're going to be. Bad, but I don't think they're going to be better. John Brooks is the ten. Uh, I've got Miles Robinson on the right, Mark McKenzie on the left, and Matt Miazga as my number nine. It really starts to crumble as you get into that forward line. Like I don't think this team is scoring any goals other than from set pieces. So but are I'm, the strikers I'm going with my scoring strikers. any goals? That's the question. I think so. I think they get score some goals. And I think with Daryl DK and Josie Altador in the middle of the back line, they're locking it down too, Graham. So those those are my 11s. I, I, I like them. 
I'm highlighting your <laughs> midfield battle between Brandon Vazquez and This is the stupidest Ream. thing we've ever done. <laughs> and if I'm picking between those two, I'm taking Tim Ream to be the better fit there. I'm not sure I see Brandon Vazquez as no, a number six. No, it's not great. He's a destroyer. He's a destroyer, your... Graham. Different, different okay, styles, right, different ways sure. of interpreting that spot. Okay, sure. <laughs> This is this is an interesting exercise. I'm wondering how the tactical flow would go, Joe. I mean, you'd have one team who would barely get out of their own half, and another who could barely. I, 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 I'm not sure that backline would have the discipline required. No, to hold probably the line. not. Probably yeah. not. Yeah, I think uh, looking at the the construction here of these teams, I think the center backs would have more control in midfield because they've got John Brooks and Tim Ream, and Austin Trusty's a decent ball-playing center back. They've got those three. Mobility is a real problem for them, though, and I think that's where the strikers really come in. <laughs> it's just so dumb. That's where the strikers really come in. Brandon Vasquez at the six gonna going to knock some people off the ball. Balogun has some mobility as well. And then Ferreira, you know, gives a lot, lots of energy, lots of running. So, I don't know. I guess it could really depend on the day and, and whether a team's really sharp with their passing and, and whether the strikers can get in there and, and disrupt some stuff. But I love this question. Seriously, I know I, I kind of joked about how silly it was, but Sean, the question was great. Me diving into the tactics of it, that was the stupid part. So thank you for this one. It was fun. <laughs> Very good. Graham, your thoughts on that? Who wins that game? Yeah, I think the strikers probably yeah. win it. Just generally speaking, they have a higher technical level I think more mobile and I also think maybe strikers and look I'm generalizing wildly here but I think strikers just generally have a bit more tactical awareness than than center backs they have to cover more ground and so the passing sequences they have to be a part of are more complex and I don't know I just feel like you could get a bit more tactical versatility versatility from a team full of strikers compared to a team full of center backs but as Joe was going through that team I was trying to do the numerical equation of his backline seemed very functional because obviously, stating the obvious, there's four positions there, whereas for a striker, you know, you're talking like one or two positions. So from that point of view, you've got four versus one or two in favour of the centre-backs yeah, who might true. actually be comfortable in, in that team. So maybe it isn't the strikers that win it. Who knows? Mm. <laughs> it's a very good thought exercise. Oh, wait, no, it's a really dumb one, as Joe said. But, uh, very <laughs> I love good. it. I love it so <laughs> yeah. much. It's great. Thank you very much, Sean, for that question. Thank you to everybody who has sent in questions for this Listener's Questions episode. We love you very much. Uh, one point of order. I think earlier in the show I said John Fetterman was the senator of uh, Philadelphia. Sorry, Pennsylvania. You're more than Philly. I, I meant to say Pennsylvania. I didn't even Scranton. catch that. We love you, Scranton. Mm. This, is like, this is like Charlie Day when he doesn't know that there's anything outside <laughs> Philadelphia or outside Pennsylvania. He, he doesn't know, yeah. <laughs> there we go. I probably sounded very dumb, as usual, when I said that. So I uh, just wanted to clear that up. But for now, Graham Ruthman, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Joe Lowry, pleasure as always. Thank you for building those teams. We appreciate that. Yeah, this was fun, Ryan. Thanks. It was indeed. Listener, thank you for joining us on this intrepid journey. We'll be back on the feed very shortly, but for now, bye.